we need to develop a sense of knack of, of watching people and engaging in conversation and inquiring where they came from and listening to their stories. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Several years ago, I participated in a study called Experiencing God. Perhaps you did too. One of the things that has stuck with me from that study is this. Find out where God is working and then join him in that. I've always tried to see where is God at work in the world. And one of the things that we've noticed is that God is on the move and not just in the United States, but everywhere. According to the UN High Commission on Refugees on the 23rd of May, 2022, the number of people forced to flee due to persecution, conflict, violence, human rights, violations, and events seriously disturbing public order had reached more than 100 million people for the first time on record. Here's what that means. It means that one in every 78 people on earth has been forced to flee. That's crazy. The world is spreading around the world, including here in the West. Chances are you've encountered someone that is from a different culture than you have come from. It could be from Venezuela, Ukraine, Russia, Laos, Congo, Nepal, Mexico, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, or Afghanistan. It could be from anywhere around the world. We encounter that every day, but rarely do our churches reflect the diversity of our communities. And I don't care where you live. It could be in a small town. It could be in a suburb. It could be in a city. Diversity is not just in the large urban environments anymore. Even small towns are becoming more and more diverse. That's why I wanted to bring on today's guest, Sam George. Sam teaches at Wheaton College. He's the global catalyst for diaspora ministries with the Lausanne movement. At Apollos Watered, we are committed to engaging global voices, to learn from the global church as well as teaching. We want to receive the best and we want to offer the best of what we have. We don't have all of the answers in the West. That's why we want to engage people from different voices from around the world to glean from them because they have much to teach us. And Sam comes from an Indian background and his faith story goes back a long way. But he helps me to see God more clearly. His vantage point helps my faith grow and I know that he will help yours grow as well. Normally, we divide these conversations into two parts, but we didn't this time. There wasn't a real natural midpoint for one, and we felt that all of the information just went together. We want to renew the church in the West, and we believe that one of the ways that we do that is by having a bigger vision of what God is doing around the world, by realizing that the church of Jesus Christ is global. When we take that perspective, when we learn from one another, the church is renewed, and that's what Sam's about to. I can't wait for you to hear what Sam has to say. We are able to have conversations like this one because of listeners and supporters like you. If you didn't know, we are a listener-supported show, and we can't do this without your help. We just finished our giving campaign for the end of 22, and we raised over $30,000 to water faith around the world. And while the campaign may have ended, our quest for ministry partners who have a holy discontent like we do 
and who long to see the church renewed is not. We need your help. We can't do this without your involvement. Please go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button, and then simply select the amount that works for you. Whether it's a one-time gift or a monthly watering partner, we would love to be able to have you partner with us to water faith around the world. Now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Sam George. Happy listening. Sam George, welcome to Apollos Watered. Thank you, Travis. Great to be with you on this podcast. I am so excited. We've known each other for a few years and our schedules have just not been able to coordinate because you are traveling around the world. You are a busy, busy man, but I am excited to have you on the show and you know how it goes. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Let's go for it. Thank you for having me on the call. I know you tried many times. Somehow it did not happen before, but now is the time. I, I feel there's a right time for everything. That's right. For such a time as this, I don't want to quote scripture out of context, but we're going to go with it just for right now. All right. Number one, coffee or tea? This is an easy one. Coffee. What kind of coffee? Is there any coffee you like specifically? Uh, just, uh, uh, you know, uh, Indian brew coffee. So describe Indian brew coffee. What is Indian brew coffee? Um, I grew up with, uh, you know, India is a tea country. They say, um, you know, British colonize India for the tea and uh, Chetli tea and all that. Uh, but I came to study in another city called Chennai. It is known for its morning coffee. And uh, I switched over uh, uh, in my college years to coffee. And I've been a coffee drinker ever since, of course, I came to America. And then I've been a coffee drinker more than tea drinker. Oh, oh, I, I wake up with the coffee. I need a strong coffee in the morning. Oh, yeah, I do, too. You travel around the world. You teach. You're writing. You're a busy man. So in whatever spare time that you have, you like to do blank. What is it you like to do? Read. Um, I've been a voracious reader from childhood. I read all kinds of things, not necessarily in my field. I always have a pile of books sitting in front of me to read list and a pile that having read, having to return to the library. So what do you like to read? Give me, give me some of the things that you like to read that non-academic, non-academic. Yeah. So I follow, uh, follow quite a bit on business world. I, you know, I lived in the business world for many years, uh, 10 years I was in the corporate America. Um, so I keep track of some of the business. Uh, some of the things that I follow is technology. And uh, so this week, um, I uh, this last week, I uh, attended the uh, the Amazon's uh, annual uh, conference uh, on cloud computing. Um, so I follow a little bit on artificial intelligence and some of the developments there, internet and technology, what is happening. I'm an engineer in my early years. My first degree was in engineering, mechanical engineering and computers, and um, then did my master's in business and worked for 10 years in the corporate America uh, based in Asia and uh, crisscrossing Asia and America for uh, nearly 10 years. That's a lot of reading. That's your fun reading? You like <laughs> to read about the cloud for fun. God bless you. That is not my idea. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just one fun. area. I mean, I do follow politics quite a bit. I follow current affairs. And, um, you know, currently I'm uh, reading a book, uh, uh, on the revenge of geography. 
I love it though. I love it. You get to meet so many different people and hear about their reading habits. And because of the geography part, here's your third question. Your most absolute favorite place to travel in the world is uh, Singapore. Um, I lived there for some years and uh, was uh, crisscrossing. I was there just two months ago and in Malaysia, Singapore and Korea. And so just, yeah, um, Asia is a fascinating place. Singapore is like a little minuscule little island. Uh, their whole of Asia is somehow compressed and condensed and, you know, experience all of Asia. And, uh, um, and it's an island. I, I grew up in islands, um, you know, seeing water nearby and, um, you know, seeing how tiny you are in the large expanses of the water um, kind of centers you and knows you, uh, who you are and your place in the world. And you went from uh, Singapore to Wheaton. I went to Singapore, to Hong Kong, uh, went back to California, went to India, started a business, came back, uh, wound up my career and went to seminary in Southern California uh, in uh, Pasadena and then went to Princeton in New Jersey and then came to Chicago some 22 years ago. Wow. That's a lot then, of moving. Then went to London. Uh, Liverpool <laughs> to do my doctoral work. So I've been a man of the move. You know, I mean, you know, my childhood was marked by lots of movement. My dad's worked for, you know, I'm originally from India. My parents are from the state of Kerala in southwest of India. Um, so soon after India become independent, uh, no jobs, uh, you know, extremely difficult time. This is after the Second World War. Uh, British had left India and he was in a pretty dire state and no jobs and opportunities or education. He had lost his dad. Uh, he was the youngest in the family and didn't have anything to do. And so he went to the nearest city, and uh, which was Chennai, uh, which was called Madras back then. And he enrolled in a the university there, a very uh, well-known uh, state university. And then somebody said, you know, hey, get on a ship. You'll find a job because they were all looking for a job. And a government job was a big deal. And he sailed across the oceans, uh, but got caught in a storm. And if Indian Ocean, if you know, those monsoon seasons can be pretty crazy. And so, yeah, got caught in a storm and uh, they ran out of water. And my dad had seasickness. I mean, he was 17 years old and uh, seasickness. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, those days, India was a very different India, you know, no opportunities. And so he just wanted to risk his life and never seen a water, never seen a ship. Uh, got on a ship and was traveling, I think, uh, 14 days or something. They ran out of water and food. And uh, he couldn't hold anything down. He was throwing up for 10 days or so. And uh, he thought he's going to die. In those days, when somebody dies in the ship, they just take the body and throw it into the waters. And he thought, you know, his family will never see him again. And and the uh, ship was drifted. It was headed to Malaysia back then. Uh, Malaysia was part of the Indian presidency during the British colonial era. So Malaysia, there was no Singapore. Malaysia, Singapore was all managed by uh, British uh, colonial institutions based in Chennai. And yeah, so ship was going there. Ship uh, had to be redirected and it was drifted in the ocean and uh, went to a nearest island, made a forced uh, landing. And, and the first sight of land, my dad just wanted to get off the ship. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Is that where you met your mom? Yeah, no, uh, he, you know, he felt sick and, you know, somebody helped, kind of nursed him back to health. 
and uh, it took uh, found a government job, climbed up, worked very hard, and it took ten more years for him to sail back to India to gather courage uh, to get back to India and then get married to my mom, you know, on his first trip. And yeah, then he took there. So I was born in the mid sixties in the islands. Uh, but then my dad's job, God's favor, worked very hard. He was one of the pioneers. Somebody extended hospitality and care. He became a champion for all the newcomers in the island, and helped hundreds and hundreds of people find a job. You know, get them established, and and uh, he got he did really well for his career. He retired as one of the senior most uh, government administrative leader. Because you've traveled around the world, though, and I love to ask this question of people that have traveled yes, around the yes. world, because we all like to eat. But what's the strangest food that's just so different? Uh, I, I'm sure in that culture, it's just normal. But for you, it was the this most strangest food you had ever personally tried. Um, I've eaten all kinds of food. I think I would say snake uh, in China. Um, snake meat. And uh, also, I was taken to a... Uh, a market, a meat market in Shanghai, and I saw uh, tiger and uh, and uh, elephant meat and all kinds of wild animals, uh, like a you know wild boar and and elephant meat and all that. But I never got on to eat that. But I have eaten snake meat. Now again, you have a very eclectic, fascinating story. So if your life were a Bollywood movie. It would be titled what? Uh, yeah, yeah, good question. I would say um, all wanderers are not lost. Oh, that's a good one. You even got bumper stickers for that. No, I, no. Mean. I mean, the idea that my life was marked by wandering, uh, wandering also gives you a very unique perspective. You can see that's one reality from multiple vantage points, and it enriches your understanding of the issue that you're seeing. Wonderful. I love that. That is, that is so good. And that really kind of acts as a segue. And we've already touched on it a little bit, but give a little bit more of your bio. Who in your family converted to, to Christianity? I mean, most people don't realize, I mean, there's a history that goes way back for from India. And does it go back generations? Is it very recent? Because I look back and I study history and I see that, that Christianity was in India way early then people always, but people often don't think about that in Christian circles because of the, the so much, so much Hinduism and Jainism and Buddhism and, 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 and so on and on. But Christianity has a, a, a real robust history. Is your family historically, do you come from generations of Christians or are, is, is it more recent for your family? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, yeah, Indian Christianity is, you know, uh, began in the first century. Uh, that's what many people in the West sometimes don't realize. Uh, so Christianity reached India before it reached America. America was even discovered or England or Germany or any of those places. Uh, it came around the same time when gospel reached Athens and Greece. And uh, so AD 52, Apostle Thomas, much like Paul took the gospel to the West, um, the one of the disciples of Jesus uh, by the name of Thomas, he traveled. Um, all the way to the furthest settlement of the Jewish people, uh, which was in southwest corner of India. And uh, he wanted to tell that, that the Messiah has come 
and he wanted to declare about Jesus's ministry and his resurrection and his death and resurrection. Uh, my own family, I can trace back at least uh, uh, till early 12th, 13th century onwards. And wow. all, family, all of them were Christians? All of them were Christians? All Christians. I wow, come from a Apostolic Thomas tradition. I'm, I was part of a born and raised in the Martoma Church. Uh, Mar means saint. Uh, Toma is Thomas. Uh, so it's like a St. Thomas Church. It's a reformed evangelical Eastern uh, Bible-believing uh, mission-oriented church. So your family goes back a considerable way. I mean, 13th century, that's way before I think probably many of our listeners would even know their family histories. To be able to trace that back is quite phenomenal. And as you said before, you I mean, you have a robust history of Christian faith in your background. Christianity has been in India for a long time. And you have wandered around the world. God has led you to different places to have these different experiences. And you now are are multifaceted in your understanding of global Christianity. One of the most foremost experts on global Christianity and diaspora Christianity. What I want to hear a little bit about, first of all, let's talk about diaspora. Now, first of all, are we saying the word correctly? Is it diaspora or diaspora? Yeah, you know, it's a Greek word, um, you know, diaspora, um, you know, or some people, you know, pronounce it in different ways. Especially when it comes to English, it gets, you know, called by all different kind of pronunciation. Uh, it's basically is two words, uh, two Greek uh, Latin words that comes together in English. Uh, you know, dia and spora. Uh, it just simply a Greek word means scattering. And then subsequently, the New Testament writers pick up that verse uh, to explain the scattering of the Jews, how Jewish people were forcefully displaced and uh, and for the gospel. And because diaspora is an important uh, factor to understand the growth and the uh, advancement of Christianity uh, all through the ages, uh, even coming to our times. Um, so Jewish people who from a one locality who got dispersed and that become the conduit or the trajectory through which Christianity spread and grew. And so that becomes an important lens to understand mission and understanding God's work in the world today. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the new living translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because... If you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You talk about how people have traveled around the world, and you're working though for uh, Lausanne. And I want to introduce, I know many people that Listen to our show are familiar with Lausanne, others are not. Introduce us to Lausanne and what Lausanne does. 
Um, Lausanne is a net, global network of Christian leaders uh, from various walks of life, pastors, evangelists, missionaries, teachers, you know, homemakers, business people, leaders of all kinds who believe in a historic um, Christian uh, faith. Yeah, and it was began with uh, you know, Billy Graham and John Stott, uh, two great leaders uh, of the Euro-American uh, church. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, uh, they have called together uh, men and women from around the world uh, for a gathering on a, every few years to renew their commitment to evangelism and mission, understanding the historic Christian faith. And so they kept meeting in different places. Uh, one significant event that happened happened in the city of Lausanne uh, in 1974. And they framed a statement of belief, you know, like what is called as Lausanne Covenant, one of the most accepted uh, global statement of faith. And uh, since then, they said, oh, that was a great meeting. We should keep meeting every now and then. And then subsequent to that, they met in 1989. There was another gathering in the year 2000 called Amsterdam 2000. And then the Lausanne our Third Congress happened in Cape Town in South Africa. And now we are preparing to uh, meet for the fourth Luzon uh, Congress uh, in Seoul in South Korea in 2024. Mm. I want to go. How do you get an invitation or can I just totally sneak in? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is by invitation only. Um, you know, I mean, we're talking about the global church. There are three billion, three billion Christians in the world. And uh, we have room for 5,000 people uh, in person and 5,000 people online. Wow, that's that's amazing. So you have to be pretty exclusive in who you allow in and who you don't allow in. Yeah, but I mean, it's not, you know, of course, you know, younger leaders, you know, we really, you know, have a have a committee who really decides the process. And so we have a process in place. Uh, so they are choosing, electing, bringing, stewarding the platform in a way that will have lasting kingdom impact for 2050. Uh, Luzon leadership has been talking about what need to happen by 2050 and 2100. Uh, so beyond a lifetime, how do we create uh, something that will gain momentum for the coming decades and will have lasting impact on the shape of Christianity on the planet uh, by the end of this year, at uh, the, the, the end of the century? Have a specific focus within Lausanne. I mean, you do a lot of different things, but your your main title is what? My title is a Global Catalyst for Diasporas. Um, migration and diaspora has become a major focus area uh, for the church worldwide uh, since 2010. Um, so every time Lausanne has met, they have also identified some area of focus. Um, so in 1974, when they met, 
uh, they talked about this idea called unreached people group, UPGs. That was a new idea. And we know and in the last 15 years, yeah, 1974. Wow. 1974. Oh, 74 is when that started. 1974, UPG came as an idea on the mission platform. It is the professor from Fuller Seminary who stood on the Luzon's platform and say that we have to reach, define people by uh, UPG, anthropological definition, rather than nationality. And until then, reaching the nations was the idea. And he unpacked the Great Commission was uh, talking in terms of ethnos, uh, people group, anthropologically defined it. And that become one of the defining criteria. And then uh, 1989 in Manila Congress, uh, the big focus on integral mission. Um, you know, uh, Latin America theologians and missiologists brought that to attention. Another big idea was 1040 window and a priority area to reach uh, gospel in the between the latitudes of 10 and 40 uh, between Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. And that becomes a major focus area across many religions. Of the world. And so that is a big focus area till the end of uh, the millennia, 2000 or so. And that 2000, uh, you know, big ideas that emerged out of the 2000 and those gatherings were cities. A city was a big focus area uh, because by 2000, March or April of that year, uh, the world population tilted towards more urban than rural. 50.2% uh, or something become urban. And uh, so more of this 21st century is going to be urban century, urban missiology, urban poverty, urban church, all of that become the focus area for study and research and work and resources and deployment and all that. Help our listeners to understand the importance of this, because as you said, it's it's a recent, not I mean, it's an ancient word, but the focus has been much more recent. This idea of diaspora communities or diaspora communities. Why do we need to talk about diaspora today? Very good question. I think, uh, you know, the idea is, you know, migration, movement of people. How do we understand uh, how that shapes and reshapes Christianity? And uh, Christianity in all its history, it is uh, shaped and influenced significantly by the movement of people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is not uh, geographically rooted or grounded like some of the other faiths are. Uh, Hinduism, for example, uh, believes that you have to live and die in a place close to where you're born uh, because your destiny, your salvation, all of that is tied to the place of birth. Uh, there is scripture prohibits people from traveling over waters. Uh, you, are, you, are, you cannot travel over water because you lose your caste, lose your identity, and you fall to the lowest caste. Uh, even if you go somewhere and then come back, you're supposed to uh, do special rituals and ceremonies to cleanse you because you have become contaminated and impure. Sounds like a religious shoots and ladders, like for kids, like you got to make your way up and then you do something bad and you slide back down and you got to start all over again. Is that yeah, right? But the idea that you're supposed to live and die in the same place, you're not supposed to go anywhere and especially crossing waters. Uh, but all of that notion is gone because now people don't have livelihood and they go to the nearest city and then they find a job and they go abroad and, and uh, but even now, many of the temples, um, you know, the uh, religious priest, you cannot enter the inner sanctum of many Hindu temples if you have traveled abroad uh, because you are unclean. But God of the Bible is a universal God. Jesus is a universal savior. Remember John the Baptist who comes and says, look, the lamp of God who takes away the sin of the world 
the whole world. Cosmos is the word there. And so the idea that he's a universal savior, he rose again and he told his disciples to go to the ends of the earth. So Christianity is embracive of all people, all cultures, all languages. Bible can be translated. And one of the great missionary efforts have been translation. So whenever missionary work is displacement, every missionary is a migrant. They go from one place to another place. And so as a result of displacement, when you come to a new place, you see the differential. These new people don't have the Bible. But I come from a land where there's a Bible in my home. There is Bible in the sitting in several copies of it sitting in the shelf. And they have a great value and appreciation for the scripture in their own languages. And some of the early my missionaries become a strong advocate of translation ministries and translated the Bible into those languages. So displacement, missionary displacement creates the need for translation and making the Bible available in those languages. And so similarly, now we say every migrant is a missionary. Just like every missionary is a migrant. It is the story of displacement where the missionary thrust uh, activation and missionary diffusion, gospel diffusion happens because of the displacement and the differential the displacement creates for the need for the gospel work in the new land. So understanding displacement, migration, missionary work, and the Christian faith at the very heart of it, which is so different from every other faith, because a lot of them are regional, tribal, territorial, oppressive. And as compared to that, Christian gospel is liberative. You're not bound to a land or a culture or a people. Different people will be the representative of Christian faith all through his history and will continue to be do so. You know, you know, what's amazing to me, Sam, is, is as you're talking about this, I kept thinking of the Old Testament where they talk about their God is the God of the, the lands or the mountains or this geography and, and the God of Israel is the God of gods. And you talk about how these missionaries are migrants, they're going into these different cultures. But we're also seeing, as we said, alluded to a little bit earlier, this idea of diaspora or diaspora, these people that are, I still I still can't get it right. I got it in my head. I have to rethink it. It's the same with Augustine and, and Augustine. I can't get it. Potato, potato. I don't know. We're just going to go with the the dia. The dia, <laughs> the idea of, the, of these guys moving around the world. You're seeing, though, a, a huge movement right now, or you have, as you mentioned, it became a massive issue in 2010. What started to happen that caused that to get on Lausanne's radar? What was it was going on? Why were these people being displaced around the world so much that Lausanne needed to pay attention? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, you know it's become a significant in terms of numbers. You know, it used to be, you know, a long distance, long term migration was a pretty, you know, uh, lots of hassles involved. Uh, going to another country, getting a visa, living in another country. Not many people could afford to do that. Uh, to take a flight was extremely difficult. You know, America, you know, my you know, mother-in-law came to America in 1950s. Uh, see, she, she traveled on a ship. And, uh, you know, she was here for, you know, two years of graduate studies. I think uh, she wrote two letters or something back home in the two years that she was here. And, you know, because communication was so much more harder. And uh, we take it for granted because we can connect on, you know, Internet, Zoom and WhatsApp. And, you know, we live in a very different world, 21st century, uh, communication and transportation. So I think you know, as a result, more connected we are, uh, more informed we are, uh, we will travel more. 
Uh, more we travel, more likely we will become Christian. And if you're a Christian, so somebody says, if you're a Christian, you will travel. And if you travel, you'll become a Christian. I've never heard that before, but I like that. Because displacement is in the story of Christianity. Yes. And uh, so God who moved into my neighborhood. And now people are moving into your neighborhood and my neighborhood. And others are coming here. We have come here. And again, American Christianity, we need to understand America is a land of immigrant. American Christianity is immigrant Christianity, I say. So describe that. I, I mean, we're talking about diaspora. We're talking about people that have been driven off their homelands for famine, work, economics, uh, war. And they're, they're coming into our countries. Some are refugees. Some are coming just for the simple opportunity, looking for education. And I, I think you're right. As we have really codified, give me, I mean, even with the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, people looking for liberty, looking for opportunity. It's the land of opportunity. And we we are a, a land of immigrants. As you've mentioned, it's what's made the country great of so many different cultures coming together. But you just mentioned immigrant Christianities. Describe what you mean by that. Yeah, so what we need to realize is Christianity is not native to America. Jesus did not come to America. He did not grow up here, you know, you know, do his ministry here. Uh, Jesus is the center of our faith. Uh, Jesus lived in a faraway land in Palestine. So how did Christianity come to America? It was through the immigrants. So the wave after wave of different immigrants brought their unique expression of Christianity from different shores of the world. First it was Spanish, then the Portuguese, and then the Dutch, and then the French, and the English, and others have brought their unique Christianity to America. Then of course, Swedish and Norwegians, and the, you know, uh, yeah, you, know uh, you know, Spain and France and Switzerland, and others also came, Irish and Scottish, they all came and pitched their tent here in America and established their faith. So, for example, Anglican Church. When English came, they brought the English church. Uh, so the queen established the great cathedral in Manhattan that became the center of the faith. Now the great Anglican Church on the Wall Street. It was the Church of England that was established. Uh, so when the Irish people, when they, okay, before that, probably the Presbyterians. What did the Scottish people do? Scottish people came and established their Presbyterian church. Germans came and established their Lutheran church. Um, so did the, you know, the Dutch and the, you know, uh, you know, Norwegians and the Swedish and the uh, Finnish. They all created their own churches. And so those becomes the starting point of these churches. Then subsequent generations, second, third, fourth generation of these Europeans, they came, uh, they, you know, shaped what has become the American evangelical church. Evangelicalism grew out of those struggles in the late 19th and early 20th century, and that shaped American Christianity. So every American can trace their roots to an immigrant beginning. Yeah, you are probably English, or a, you know, Flemish, I don't know what your roots are. You're probably second, third generation, uh, you know, 1800s, 1840, the Irish came uh, because of the potato famine in Ireland uh, between 1840 and 1880. 
probably half the uh, one third to half the entire country had to go somewhere and find shelter. They went to England. Some of them went to mainland Europe, and many of them came to America. Uh, so did the German, and so do everybody. And then what happened in the post-Second uh, World War, we see the Eastern Europeans and also the Jewish people uh, who find their home in America. And uh, then, of course, you know, South America, after the revolution, uh, we find Latin American issue, Latin American migration into the country. And in the last 30 years or so, Asia has been the major wave. Of course, we skipped over the African slave wave when millions of Africans were brought into America and that become the African-American stream. So I often would like to see American Christianity as the great uh, mighty Mississippi. Here is this great river. Every stream uh, from different, different parts, they brought the unique flavor, unique Christian expression and the spirituality to this great stream. And every time a stream joins the main river, there is an increased flow and activity and you know, mobility within that river. Otherwise, it'll sediment and it'll become shallow and you know, without any flow and it'll become dead and lifeless. And so every stream, the European stream, which comprises of many, many minor uh, unique streams within that, and then the African stream, and then the Latin American stream came. And now there are 63, 64 million Latin, Amer Latin American uh, you know, from Mexico and Central and South America are here in America. And you know, so that's a unique stream. Spanish speaking, largely from a you know past Catholic uh, evangelical Pentecostals uh, background, and they are coming to this country. And now the fastest growing stream is Asia, and uh, because in you know, much of you know until 1965, Asians were banned to enter the country. Uh, to to America. up until 1965. Until, really? until 1965. What what changed in 1965? The immigration reform. Uh, there was a major okay. act at the Congress. And uh, they, you know, uh, undid all the bans on uh, originating, originating countries where people were allowed into the country in the U.S. So, so what countries were not allowed in? Asia, Asian allowed. countries weren't allowed. It is called Asian oh, Exclusion wow. Act. Oh my goodness! It began as a Chinese Exclusion Act in in California, uh, where Chinese were coming because of the Gold Mountain and the Chinese migration there. Uh, they didn't want many Chinese because they were cost cutting. Europeans and so they're working in their labor and the you know kind of the you know and the railways and uh, uh, you know worked uh, labor migrants who came from Hawaii and Hawaii to California and so they first began as a Chinese exclusion in 1882 and then subsequently become an Asian Exclusion Act uh, in early uh, 20th century and that lasted all the way till 1965. 65 immigration reform happens. And then Asia started to begin to begin flow here. Of course, it was largely uh, Chinese Indians, but also Filipinos, Korean, and others. So when we're talking about the Asian Christianities, because we have so many different streams of it, but I, I find that a lot of Westerners in the United States aren't familiar with so many different Asian Christianities. They think of it as a whole, but it's very, very different. Each culture that comes in is very, very different. How many are we talking about when we're talking about Asian Christianities, about roughly? I know there's so many depends on people groups and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think our numbers will be, you know, I mean, it's just varied. I mean, it depends on, you know, so they make, you know, the idea is when first generation comes in, they will start their services in their own language. And the culture becomes very important. What he meant is when immigrants come, they bring their language and culture. 
But in the process of Americanization, we lose the language and culture. Most second generation, third generation don't know any language and you know, cultural competency in their ancestral land and the people uh, reduces significantly. Over the second and third generation, we get Americanized. Is that true, though, for any country? Like we see so many immigrants going into Germany over because of war in, in Syria. Do you think that still Germanization happens there, too, where they're learning German and they're not holding on to their language? Or is that just unique to the American experience? I think it is, you know, it is in many ways, you know, uh, you know, just survival mm-hmm. issue. Uh, when immigrants go to a foreign country uh, to find employment. Uh, to live in that society, uh, to find, you know, go into a college, uh, you know, learning that language becomes important. Uh, but of course, English is a global language and, uh, you know, uh, uh, people uh, all over the world, a uh, common language that is globalized, um, you know, uh, you know, it is English, uh, most global language. And, uh, but if you have a, a Syrian refugee or Iraqi refugee who's arriving in Germany, um, you know, one of the first thing is within the first six months, we have to learn German yeah. language to be able to survive. That way you can go to the market and do your shopping and, you know, you know, you know live in the society, fill up the forms, seek the refugee status, uh, find a job and livelihood. Uh, all of that is possible only if you learn German. And uh, so immigrants become uh, multilingual. I mean, I speak five languages. You know, I just grown up in India. Most Indian people speak at least three languages. So that's very naturally. We come to uh, what we call as a polyglot or multilingual, uh, you know, competency. And uh, because Christians are, you know, multilingual, Christianity is multilingual. Uh, if you know only one language, you will be poorer for not knowing the rest of the uh, Christian story. I don't even know one language. I know half of a language. <laughs> <laughs> you know five. What are the languages that you speak? Uh, many of them are Indian languages, and I'm learning a few others, you know, foreign languages. Uh, but just that's just the nature of India. India is a multilingual nation. Every kid learns three languages minimum. Their regional language, which is their mother tongue. Uh, they learn, learn a national language in the form of Hindi and then uh, speak another language, English, uh, because of, you know, science, technology, engineering, business and law. And, you know, everything is taught in English. And uh, by the way, India is the largest English speaking country in the world. There are more people speak English in India than England, Scotland, Ireland, Canada, America, all put together. That's crazy. That is just crazy. I don't know anybody that's ever recited that statistic to me. That's phenomenal. When I first came to America some 30 years ago, I remember my, you know, you know, white, wonderful colleagues who had never been outside California. You know, they said that, hey, you know, how, when did you learn to speak English so well? <laughs> I said <laughs> Before you, <laughs> better than you. <laughs> no, no. So, so, so I said, English is not your language. Neither is my, you know, original language. And uh, then I said that the same stat. And I said, there are more people speaking. How did you speak English? And I said, I don't speak only English. I speak few other languages. And uh, because that's the nature of the colonial legacy. Uh, British came to India and left behind English. And cricket. And cricket. <laughs> and the love for <laughs> Cricket, I love it. So uh, let's talk about India there for a bit. You're talking about Indian diaspora. You've actually written a book, Desi Diaspora. I mean, you've got some other books out now that are talking about these Asian diaspora communities, but this is ministry among scattered global Indian Christians because we see a lot of Indians. I I know in my sphere of influence and where I live, there are a lot of different Indian communities that are there. I can go uh, watch a a soccer or football game, uh, American soccer, 
and you'll see everyone there is speaking Hindi or Malayali. And, and, and I don't think, though, that the people that I interact with uh, on a normal basis are familiar with this group. They, we know that there are Indians everywhere we go. Some of the most educated CEOs we see in the tech industry, we see in the medical industry, we see in even food service, running restaurants, so on and so forth. But how many Indians do we see living in, and let's just say the United States right now, how many Indians are living in the United States roughly? Yeah, we crossed uh, um, 2020 census, we crossed uh, 5 million. Uh, we are the second largest after the Chinese. Uh, Chinese are the largest uh, immigrant group from Asia. Uh, of course, uh, you know, uh, Spanish Mexico is the largest immigrant, uh, you know, people in, in the United States. And, uh, but, uh, you know, of course, they have been coming over a century or so. Uh, Asian immigrant began in 1965 and onwards. And uh, so currently, as of 2020 census, which came out early 2022, uh, American Community Survey, uh, data shows that Indian Americans uh, reached close to 5.1 million. Uh, so if you include the larger South Asian population, uh, South Asia is the continent uh, of uh, so Indian subcontinent, which includes India, Pakistan, uh, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Maldives. Uh, so these are the seven nations in and around India. Uh, they are largely clubbed together as South Asian or the Indian subcontinent. And all of them were under the British rule. After the British uh, uh, left, they were broken up into several nations. And um, so that region, there's a, a nearly 5.5 million people uh, in the US. And But Indians particularly uh, stand out. Uh, they are the most educated, uh, wealthiest minority in America right now. I mean, as you said, they're most educated. You're right. We see, again, across all these different industries. What's the religious makeup? And how many, what percentage of this group is Christian? Uh, around 20%. Um, you know, so almost a million Indians are Christians uh, because of early waves in late 60s and early 70s, it is often called as a healthcare wave. Um, you know, America had a shortage of nurses and doctors. Uh, the healthcare system was faltering, and after the, uh, you know, the, you know, there was no nurses, and hospital system was falling apart, and so they needed, uh, you know, medical professionals, and so they brought large number of them from Philippines, and then India, um, so nurses and medical doctors, large number of them came uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, and so that healthcare industry, uh, there was Christian presence was very high in India. Uh, because a lot of the medical institutions and hospitals were all created uh, by the missionary uh, who came from the West, uh, from America, from England, from Germany and others. And so many, uh, you know, uh, many Indians won't send their daughters to study, uh, you know, in college or even professional fields like nursing, uh, because uh, nursing was a very, uh, you know, disregarded or, you know, uh, profession of disrepute. And uh, because you have to touch somebody else's man, uh, married a woman is not supposed to touch anybody else because that'll defile them. In Hinduism, and, is that uh, culturally so, or religious? Yeah, Hinduism, or both religious and cultural okay. beliefs. And uh, they had to be homebound and committed, devoted to their husband, and not touch blood. Blood, blood will make you impure. Touching another man will make you impure and unfaithful to your uh, your husband. And all of those kind of, you know, very age old superstition and religious uh, beliefs 
uh, confine people from pursuing these careers. It is the Christian families who send their daughters to study uh, medicine and doctor and nursing and all that. So when America needed nurses, it is a Christian belt that they send uh, from Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Andhra Pradesh, and uh, Gujarat and other places where many, many who came in the first wave of Indians were Christians. Uh, nearly 60% of Indians in the 60s uh, were Christians. And then gradually it declined. Uh, but as of 2022, uh, the total among all the immigrants who have come to America, five plus million, 20%. And so that's nearly a million Christians. They are spread over some 1,500 churches uh, in every state across the country. Mm. Now, with the 20% being Christian, that means 80% are Hindu. And, oh, no, no Hindu. Oh, that's uh, right. 50, you know, 50% or so are Hindus. 50% are Hindus. So the rest would be like Muslim, Jainist, Buddhist, yeah. Sikh. Sikh. Yeah, Sikh, Sikh, uh, uh, people who wear yep. turban. It's a Sikhism is a faith. It's not S-I-K-H. Uh, some of my American, you know, friends don't even uh, know about this religion. They think sick people. Uh, you know, it's not. Uh, you know. Speaking of this, it is the religion of Sikhism. Do you know, light. Do you know and, this guy, Light of the Sadguru? Do you know yeah. him? Jas yeah. Jasveer. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to have Jasveer on the show. Jasveer. Because uh, and uh, so Sikhism is a religion. You know that also grew up in India in protest to Hindu traditions. Jainism is another religion. And of course, India is also large Islamic community and also Bangladesh and Pakistan. So many have come from those regions as well. And uh, but smaller percentage and uh, the second largest Indian religious affiliation is to Christianity. And the first being Hinduism. Number one is Hinduism. How does that work then? I thought they were defiled if they flew over the ocean. How's that work? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's uh, also the idea of uh, um, you know, land of gold and, you know, uh, opportunity. Uh, they were educated populists. India couldn't employ them. There was not enough opportunities. Higher studies, uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, in the uh, late 70s, there was an American, uh, Indian American uh, scientist who got Nobel Prize. Uh, that kind of really rocked the Indian world. And uh, we only had found, uh, you know, uh, India had only got one Nobel Prize before that. Uh, it was for literature. And uh, here is a science and technology guy, astrophysicist, uh, who got a Nobel Prize for his invention. And that kind of set the American academia, hey, there are good scientific minds in India, uh, in engineering and maths. And so 70s and 80s, American universities started hunting for young men and women to come and study graduate studies and do doctoral researches in America. So millions of them came over 70s and 80s, and they become the brain power of some of the innovations in the medical science and technology, uh, Wall Street, academia in America. And uh, so the brightest of the brightest young men and women were brought to America, taught them in the American academics, research and scientific methodologies, and they become subsequently, uh, you know, great inventors, uh, business leaders, and, uh, you know, yeah, you know, entrepreneurs. And um, so, you know, Google chief is Indian, Microsoft chief is Indian, Adobe and, you know, you know, IBM, all of them heads are being headed by Indians now. Uh, these are the cream of the cream from India. And uh, some of the best education they got in India, they brought here, they went to top schools in America and they got hired by American company and they're delivering big time uh, to the economy here and to their cultural influence in America 
uh, because that's why they are wealthiest and the most dedicated ethnic minority, uh, much like the Jewish people were in the early uh, you know, 20th century. And uh, now Indians are the cream of the cream in America. So how then, you have so many Indians, 20%, as you said, are coming in as Christians, and they're helping strengthen the church and, and as you said, contribute to the greater Mississippi stream. I love that imagery of the, the flowing in and strengthening the stream and, and hoping acting as a corrective for those things that have gone much more Americanized than the true gospel. I think this is where God bringing the nations helps, I think, help us remove our blind spots when we can we can see and, and fully see God, more of a new begin approach in that regard. Looking at that, though, there are still so many, as you said, Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims. I find, though, that many within the let's say the white evangelical church are not embracing or don't know how to reach. I shouldn't say it that way. They don't know how to reach, reach out to Indians. And again, this is, this is a diverse group of people in so many different ways, different States, different religious backgrounds, different educational levels, uh, all the different caveats. And then depending on the level of globalization and how long they've been here and Americanization that's happened. I mean, you've even written a book on that called the coconut generation, the younger people that are growing up here in America that are dark on the outside, but are, quote unquote, white on the inside. That's a whole different uh, approach. How do we help the church see and embrace the the group that needs to be reached? Number one. Number two, how do we appeal or even reach into that Hindu group? And three, how do we minister differently between the older generation that has either newer, the first generation that's been here, because there are still a lot of first generation or even second generation and different between that and the third generation. So I got five questions right there for you. If you got to write all those down. I know that's that one hour of talking there itself. <laughs> you have to unpack that. Love it. I know you're trying to you know, cover so much of ground here. There's so much of literature and so much of research have gone into each of those questions. Uh, I'll try to attempt uh, uh, maybe, you know, you know, uh, you know, yeah, briefly. You got three hours. That's three more hours for each question. <laughs> All right. Take a stab at it. The, uh, the 2020 World Christianity Encyclopedia study says about personal contact uh, with uh, non-Christians uh, is all time low. Uh, and Christians to contact, be in touch, personal contact simply means to be in touch with people Outside the four walls of the church with whom you do okay, church. Okay, hold on. Pause there. Uh, you so said all-time low Christians talking to non-Christians, or personal contact with non-Christians. All-time low? Yes. Uh, the data says, uh, I can tell you the 2020 data across America. We are talking about Hindus. 13% or so have contact with a Christian. 13% of Hindus in America have a contact with a Christian. Is that right? Uh, in America. It is 20 percent. So 20% of Hindus have a contact, personal contact with a Christian in America. Wow. They never stepped into a house of a Christian. They never invited a Christian into their home. Uh, they never know. They do professional exchange at a workplace, at a local store, but they really got to sit together, have a coffee, meet with them, talk to them, get to know them. One is the otherness. We are overwhelmed. We don't know. Uh, Indians tend to be a little more philosophical and religious in their orientation. Uh, they are definitely a lot more conservative, uh, you know, than Western conservatives. 
uh, in issues of you know gender, sexuality, relational issues, and understanding uh, of life and you know values of life. And so I think you know the idea that you know what does it mean? Uh, we are only we become so siloed. Uh, the great strength of America is people coming from everywhere, but we all live in our little silos. It is important for Christians to know and have the courage. You don't have to have answer for everything, uh, but just befriend them, befriend people who are unlike you, uh, greet them, get to know where you are from, and you know what brought you to America when you came to America. They want to talk, but sometimes we feel kind of we pull into our cave and kind of into, into our shell and uh, we don't have enough courage. I mean, the last questions, I don't know how to answer from the Bible. You don't have to be an expert in the Bible. Just personal relational skills is an important cultural skills. And I think as pastors and leaders, we also have a responsibility to help our people to see people because we have these, it's not like a blind spot, but somehow it doesn't appear on our radar. There are a lot of people are oblivious. They're walking around us, but I don't see them. We need to develop a sense of knack of, of watching people and engaging in conversation and inquiring where they came from and listening to their stories. We can go through the busyness of life and life in the motion of, you know, religious motion. I do my church, you know, with 100 people or 5,000 people, whatever the size of your church is tick mark on my Christianity and go on with life as I want to live. So you're saying building relationships is key, that personal connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. And learning about the world. Learning about the world. So listening. Christianity is growing in other parts of the world. Christianity is growing from other parts of the world. And many people who have come to America, almost most majority of the people who have come to America are Christians. That is something that they don't realize. Just because they don't look like my same skin color or, you know, don't show up at my church every other Sunday does not mean they are not Christians because, you know, there are 700 million Christians in Africa, 600 million Christians in Latin America. There are some 450 million Christians in Asia. So where they say in the history of Christianity, where Christianity grows, it pushes its people out. They become mobile and they go to places to the ends of the earth. And now many who are coming to America are their Christians. They may go to a church across the street, but I don't want to talk to them because they are not doing church the way I do church. They are not coming under the, my leadership as a local pastor of this church and paying their tithes to this church so I can minister to them. That's a fallacy of modern dichotomized siloed Christianity. It, it, it would be imperative, I would think, though, that some pastors, if they're not looking at the trends and the numbers are down, at least with American Christianity, post-COVID, I, I was talking with a guy who places pastors and he said, I'm talking to people and they're still citing their numbers from pre-COVID. He goes, it's it's two years later. He, he goes, those people are gone. And we're seeing a cultural shift right now between paradigms. But God is still bringing the nations and he's bringing a lot of the people around us. Why does the church have, let, and let me put it this way. Why does the white Western evangelical church, and, and, and I'm sure there's other pockets too, and I'm, I'm just going to cite the one that I come from right now, have such a hard time seeing God bringing in these different groups and seeing him working and partnering together for the furtherance of the gospel. What, and I'm sure there's not just one factor, 
But what do you see is keeping these groups apart from one another? Yeah, I think, you know, it's the um, one is I think immigrant Christianity, you know, um, you know, we all go into our respective streams and they we don't merge. We continue to flow as independent streams. Uh, but the second, third generation might jump out of the stream and then come to the mainstream, but they don't get recognized because they are a Chinese or Korean or a Latino. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, so they don't uh, get recognized uh, or their culture celebrated or they want them to whitewash them and become like, act like the mainstream Christian because this is how we do church and Christianity. So that becomes the normative understanding of the Christian faith. And there is less room for a variety and uh, celebrate the diversity that is in the global church. And, uh, you know, so, you know, um, I think it was John Stott who said, uh, you know, we have to become global Christians uh, because our God is a global God. And, uh, you know, and uh, so there was another uh, African theologian who said, if I belong to Christ, I belong to everyone who belongs to Christ. I can never understand Christian faith all by myself. I need Christians who does not look like me and they will enrich my understanding of the Christian faith and the global church. Because we are at a time in the history of the church where there is a Christian in every country of the world, every geopolitical entity of the world that are church. It must. Sunday morning as I stand in the church, sing a song or a preach or give your tithes or whatever you do, your offering and fellowship and small groups or whatever your activities are Sunday schoolers, you must recognize it is not that these 200 people who agree doctrinally and do everything together, you know, the four walls of your church. There are men and women in every country of the world, all over the world, this Sunday, they have worshipped my sense of solidarity with the global family of God. And so we had to globalize our faith. Our narrow, uh, parochial, uh, you know, nationalized or ethnicized understanding of faith, uh, you know, keeps us so poor. And I think it was in the last week I was listening to N.T. Wright, uh, uh, great uh, Bishop N.T. Wright uh, from the Anglican uh, Bishop. He was saying division of the church along the lines of nationality, language, ethnicity and cultural lines have effectively blunted the witness of the church in the world. So we have nationalized our church, which is the German church, English church, Irish church, whatever that is. In America, we got racialized it. Black church, white church, brown church. You know, we kind of ethnicized and racialized our Christian faith because our biases, our lack of understanding of the global church, the gospel, where there is no black or white, no Jew or Gentile, no man or woman. Understanding the global church is an imperative for the American church at the crossroads of this kind of post-racialized, the you know, tension with the political and race issues have become so galvanized. And we need to understand that our faith is universal. Our faith is a global faith because our God is a global God. He has children, that is my brothers and sisters, of brown and yellow and you know, yeah, every color and every every stream all over the world. The more we can help our people to globalize their faith, understanding the global family of the faith, they will have a richer experience of the Christian faith. Take, taking that into consideration. So all these people who are coming from around the world, 
is helping American church to become global. Yes, totally agree. More global the American church is, more globally relevant we will be and more globally connected we will be. They also bring us connection to those parts of the world where there is a revival breaking yes, out. Yes. Like in China. Yes. If you know Chinese Christians, the fastest growth of Christianity right now is happening in China. So if you know the church and underground church in China, that will set you on fire to understand your Have own you seen faith. This? Yes. She's uh, Hannah Nation. Yes. Hannah Nation is coming on the show to talk about this. You're seeing the church explode around the world, but you're not seeing it in the United States. And I mentioned the... I think that the Western church, the white evangelical Western church, and, and you could say it into the different pockets that's racialized by staying in our own little pockets, we find comfort, but we lose a, a greater global conviction. And our testimony, I think, suffers. You know, I, I, I've talked about this and I'm writing this right now. We have the, the Great Commission, right? To go make disciples of all nations. We all know the Great Commission. The Great Commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. But then there's the Great Community. And I think that's the one that we've been missing. John 17, I pray they may be one as we are one so the world may know. This unity that we have to work through shows the reality of our heart and our conviction. And without that, without being together, without working through these issues, I, I, I think our, our vision of God dissipates. I think we can become comfortable. I think we give in to the kind of carbon monoxide of our culture. You know, it slowly lulls us to a spiritual sleep. But when I'm with someone else working out my differences, it's work. It's work to understand, to listen, to, to be hospitable, to open up our home, to hear stories. But it's so worth the price. I just wish that so many in the church would be able to see this, what you're talking about, because I want to give it. I mean, it enriches my experience. It enriches my understand, broadens my outlook. And gives me great sense of compassion, my understanding and empathy. At the same time, they are bringing and helping me to see my faith in a whole different level. And I think oh, America Church will be in a better place more than no immigrants around the world. Well, as you said, because because a lot of the immigrants that are coming in are more conservative anyway. So they have no problem taking the Bible as the word of God. No problem with the biblical authority. No problem with understanding of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's not they're not coming with, I mean, they have their own baggage. We all have our own cultural baggage, but this is a, this is something that can revive and renew the, the church if we would just do it. Now, saying that is one thing. The practical implications of doing it are very different. And any pastoral leader will say, if I try to do this, I'm going to lose my people. I, I'm going to lose my tithers, my givers, my, my robustness, because this is so out of the comfort zone of so many people that I'll lose them before I get the opportunity to do so. So take a step, right? It's, it's being a part of that step, the next step, the next step. What's the small little step? And as you said, it starts with building relationships. I think, though, that some people want to just give the quote unquote, four spiritual laws and go on. What do people miss? This is getting much more practical. How do we go about sharing the gospel, talking about Indian diaspora now and the Hindu specifically? Let's focus on the Hindu because we could focus on any of the other group. How do we share the gospel when their worldview is so different, when many of us have come from a christened mindset where the idea of one God is just, that's a given. But here you're talking about a polytheistic, long-term historical faith. What are the practical steps that we need to do to help overcome those barriers of sharing and showing Jesus to them? Yeah, uh, very good question again. I would say that um, we don't have to take up 
the apologetic philosophical approach. Uh, most Indians that you will meet are probably more educated, more well-versed, more religious than uh, average uh, American evangelical. Mm -hmm. um, so that is not the approach that you need to take. I would say that take a relational approach. Get inquisitive about their family. Talk about their community. Talk about which part of India do you come from? And they all want to talk about that. Ask about what language do they speak? Ask if you're interested. Ask them one or two greetings in that language. This applies to Indians and every other immigrants that you will run across here in America. So these are bridge builders or a conversation starters. Ask about the family. Asian community is very family oriented. In America, family system has fallen apart. They don't even want to have a conversation on family. So, but you know, you don't have to talk about your family, but you talk about, okay, who are in your family? I see several people coming and going out of, you know, your neighbor's gray, I know, out of the driveway and, you know, um, you know, who are their family? Do you have parents or, you know, relatives back in India or China or Korea, whoever the people are, you know, kind of break a conversation about relationship, family, community. When did you come to America? What brought you to America? What do you do for a living? These are conversations that you can have in the grocery aisle and, you know, in the airport, you know, or in the plane sitting next to you. You don't have to share anything about, you know, sharing the spiritual laws or get them baptized at the end of the conversation. It is a series of conversation. If hundreds of us will consistently engage in the series of conversation with everyone who is in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, and I think ball will start rolling. They are also ministering to you. They are expanding your understanding. Your heart is expanded. You have a greater burden. And let's pray for them. You have one or two people that you talked to this week. Let's pray for those people. Then I do my ground, uh, homework. Okay, he said that he's from, he speaks Telugu. It's a language in India. And he comes from such and such state in India. Let me go and research about that. What is his language, Telugu? Is there a Bible available in that language? By the way, Telugu language was translated by William Carey, the father of modern missions. And, you know, just got to find out suddenly, you know, so I have something to talk about. You know, did you know how, you know, there was a man who came uh, from England and, you know, who, who translated, who learned your language and uh, translated the entire Bible into your language? Oh, really? Our language was developed because of the Western missionaries. You don't have to take pride or take, you know, uh, take, uh, you know, uh, claims of you have done the work or whatever that is. But the idea that you're respectful of differences and language and culture and celebrate the difference. And you can tell them there are over 300 Telugu churches in America. There are 500 Malayali churches in America. So the stereotypical understanding that every Indian is Hindu is wrong. There are 1,500 Indian Christians. And so having these conversations, a series of conversations, go back, do your research, and then have another conversation at the next, another plane altogether. And a series of conversations that you can have, get to have their family, have the family over. You know, you will get invited into their homes. And uh, you don't have to be sharing the gospel, but build a relationship over a long periods of time. And then they will ask you why you believe what you believe. Why do you do certain things? Why you do certain things? And then you can say that I, Sunday I go to church. I believe in Jesus because Jesus changed my life. 
And I know fellow, other, I, I met other Indians who are Jesus followers. Don't make it into religion, you know, philosophical arguments, you know, you know, when are you really, you know, saved and, you know, that their idols are all, you know, uh, you know, wrong or uh, false gods. And, you know, you don't have to attack any of their faith backgrounds. Just present Jesus and how Jesus has changed your life and why Jesus is so important to you and what he has taught, why you believe in the Bible and why you read Bible every day. Share your spirituality, your love for Jesus uh, with other people. When they ask you, don't volunteer and go out and try to bulldoze them. And uh, be gentle and kind and be available. Continue to pray and do your homework. Soon or later, they will ask the question, what do you believe? And now, now is the time for you to share. And don't ask a dogmatic uh, doctrinal statement, but personalize it. What does the Bible, what does Jesus mean? What does it mean faith, Christian faith has meant for you? What do you say to those? Because I've interacted with some folks who basically, they want to do the presentation right away. What's the danger of doing that with someone that's coming from a, a Hindu background? Yeah, I would say that, you know, that may be the last conversation, you know, they will have with you. They'll just shut it down. Uh, you have to take a long, long approach, a long drawn approach in engaging, especially Hindus. Mm. Uh, Why? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, because their religious orientation and then communal nature of their faith. Uh, because sometimes it's difficult for individuals to believe in certain things. Uh, you know, Hinduism is a communal faith. The whole family, the whole clan believes in certain things. And the God is the family God. Um, so a, a young woman who may be impressed with Jesus and Jesus teaching and your church and community, but she's not at the liberty to personally believe in what she wants to believe. Because her father, her husband, her community, is you know, it's a communal faith that they believe in. It is not individualized and uh, as in a Western enlightenment idea of individually, I am choosing Jesus, you know, in my heart and I receive Christ to be my savior. Uh, this is a very consumeristic, individualized understanding of Christian faith. And, uh, you know, individual, a Hindu background has not had the liberty to make a choice of their own, especially in matters of faith. It's a communal decision. And so even if the individual decides that they, we need to give room for others uh, to have a say, so kind of sustained relationship over a long periods of time. And when they go through difficulties, when they go through family problems, when they lose their job, when they have challenges in life, they have nobody to turn to. May you be the one that they will turn to. And then you be there to offer a prayer. Assure them you are there with them. You will be praying for them. And they will ask you to pray for them. And I often ask them, I, I pray, I'll pray to Jesus. And I will ask the prayer in Jesus because when I ask something in Jesus' name, because Jesus promised that he will listen and he will answer. Is that okay? And many Hindus have said, yes. Could you please pray to you, your Jesus for me? And I'll gladly intercede and pray for them. And so I think, you know, we need to uh, stand with them. You know, individuals that are international student or young professional who moved into the country, you know, in this country four or five years ago or, two months ago. Uh, they're very lonely people. Uh, they don't have any relationship. 
if you can build a sustained relationship, they will turn to you for all their life challenges here in this new country. And those becomes amazing opportunity to live out the gospel uh, before you share the gospel. Sam, this has been a delightful conversation. I, I want to continue this and have you back on because I think we've only scratched the surface. How can people follow more of what you're doing and learn more about what you're doing? Uh, so I'm based in Chicago. I teach at Wheaton College and uh, uh, Trinity and a few other schools and uh, around the world. And uh, But I'm served with Luzon. Uh, so look me up at Luzon, L-A-U-S-A-N-N-E dot org. And they can search for me and you can find me. I'm part of the Catalyst team. And uh, uh, so you can find me there. Or if you're in Chicagoland area, um, you know, please come over to Wheaton. We can have, have to connect with them there. Otherwise, email and uh, or Twitter would be the best way to reach me. And uh, thank you for what you do, Travis. We miss you here in Chicago. But on these winter days, I guess you have no regrets of living in nice Florida warm weather. And, I got shorts um, on right now. <laughs> yeah, here it is, uh, 34 degrees here. And, uh, so, But we are glad, uh, glad for your ministry, your podcast, and your audience, and uh, what you're doing there. Proud of you, and uh, God bless your work and your conversation with many leaders around the world and around here in the U.S., and, and your faithful listeners. Uh, please share this with other people. Others will be blessed uh, with the great breadth of audience and depth of their insight that Travis is bringing to you. And uh, may you continue to learn and be enriched and uh, grow and understand God's work and God's purposes for your life for such a time as this. I love that image of American Christianity being like the Mississippi River. All the streams going into it are what keeps it flowing forward. We all contribute, and we do need one another. Christianity has always been a diaspora movement, an immigrant movement. It is always, and will always, move and shift demographics and styles. Because in Christ, God opens himself to everyone, and we get to be a part of it. That is awesome. We get to be a part of something so much bigger than we are on our own. Sam's reminder to us gets to the heart of who we are in Christ, doesn't it? He takes us all and brings us in. He wants to be with us. So why wouldn't we want to bring in others too? It might take work and time, but it's really not that complicated. Show genuine interest in people. Learn about them. Show them who you are. It's really not so different than what we've heard from other guests like Audrey Frank or Nick Ripkin or Ruth Ripkin. Even in our differences, we are human beings created in the image of God. And when we really get to know one another, we get to see God more clearly. We, we can see God through the eyes of believers from around the world, and we can help others who don't know him see him. And guess what? We get to see him better when we do that too. That's a true renewal of the church. We get to see what, that we are a part of something so much bigger that our brothers and sisters from around the world are us too. That waters my faith, and I hope it waters you. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for making this dream a reality. And I want to thank you for listening to our show. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And